Amen. Well, welcome to everyone who's here today. Thanks for everyone who's joining us online in the lobby and in the VHQ. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Caleb Duvick. I'm one of the pastors here at Two Cities Church. And that video that you guys just saw is what we're all about at Two Cities. We're excited about seeing people's lives changed by Jesus Christ and people who are asking the question, what's my next step? And taking that step in obedience. Hopefully, this is a question you're going to hear over and over here at Two Cities. What is my next step? And if you're here today and you're a Christian and you have never taken that step of being baptized to publicly proclaim your relationship with Jesus Christ to the watching world around you, now's your chance. We would say, if that's you, go to the welcome tent when you're done here today and say, hey, I'm in. I want to be baptized. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing that already with 19 people. And we would love to celebrate that with you then as well. And so if we're gonna dive right in today, if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter five. We're gonna be in verses 38 through 48. We're gonna be continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you're new with us, if you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, one of the best ways that I have heard it described is Jesus is unpacking for his disciples back then and today what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. You see, because Jesus is a king who's ushering in this kingdom, but it's a kingdom that's far different than anything else that anyone's ever really thought about. John Stott, he's a famous theologian, he describes the Sermon, the sermon on the Mount as a manifesto that Jesus is giving for what it looks like to be a follower of him. And one of the things that you have seen already, if you've been tracking with us, is that if we as citizens of the kingdom are living this out, we are going to look incredibly different from everybody else around us. We're gonna be looking very countercultural. And so before I moved to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, I lived in a place called Louisville, Kentucky. You may have heard of it. And it's a place, there's a slogan for it that I thought was really interesting the first time I heard it. It's called, uh, Keep Louisville Weird. Okay, Keep Louisville Weird. I had no idea what that was talking about until one day I was sitting at a red light and in front of me zooms past a guy on a unicycle being chased by someone else in a Bigfoot costume. And I thought, that's weird. Okay, that makes sense. That made it come alive to me. And I think in the same way, Jesus would love that slogan for Christianity. Keep Christianity weird. That's something we are called to make alive for the people around us. Being strange, being different is something that we actually should embrace. It's a badge that we're proud to hold. Now, here's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying dig out your goofy Christian t-shirts I'm not saying post more cringeworthy church memes on your social media. What we're talking about to be strange, to be different, is to be so Christ-like in your life that it just doesn't make sense to the people around you. That's what God's calling us to, is to be different. And we're gonna see that is very much the case in this passage today because we are called to new heights of that. Read with me, starting in verse 38, it says this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. 
And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now church, Sometimes you read passages in the Bible and what you're reading is difficult. And so you need some more understanding of what it actually means. Other times you read the Bible and it's perfectly clear, but the thing that it's calling you to do is what's difficult. And that's what this passage is today. And we see at the heart of it in verse 43 and 44, it says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. And that's what we're called to today. Bertrand Russell, who is a famous Nobel Prize winner, he was also an atheist, he said this about this verse, that loving your enemies is a good thing. There's nothing to be said against it, except that it's too difficult for most of us to do. <laughs> and I think, if we're honest, that's what many of us feel about this passage as well. You know, maybe we think about it, it's like, man, I, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know who my enemies are. Or maybe you're like, man, I don't know what it means to love someone like that. Or maybe you think it's a beautiful thing for somebody else to do, Right? <laughs> And that's how we feel about it. And so what we see, though, is that loving our enemy today is becoming increasingly obsolete. Not just for us as a church, all around. It feels that way. In the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, the authors say that the, the prevalent mentality that most of us have in our society today is when we come across someone who that we, we fundamentally disagree with them, it's reasonable to think that they're a bad person. They're actually a villain. You know, not just to us personally, but to society as a whole. And as this mentality comes, you know, becomes more and more prevalent, what that creates is this us versus them mentality in our society today. Can you guys feel that? I think most of us can. And in that kind of society, what ends up happening is that there's no room for grace. There's no room for forgiveness. There's no room for reconciliation. And what we see is something tragic and toxic. And it's easy for us as the church to be like, oh, ha ha, look at them out there. But unfortunately, that has crept its way into the church as well. This is something that some of us sitting here today are dealing with on a very real level. And Jesus is saying this to you, not because you need to hear it because you're on the receiving end of it, but because you are the one who is perpetuating it. You're the one who's dishing it out. God is calling some of you to consider today, where are you functionally striking people oppressing them or cursing them. And you may think that you're doing it out of place of Christ-likeness, but really what is driving that is not a, a desire to live more like him. It's because you have some allegiance that you've put ahead of Jesus Christ. Whether that's some prejudice that you hold or your politics or an ideology that you've given yourself over to. But what Jesus is calling you to do today, if that's you, is to repent of those things. Here's not what he's saying. He doesn't say, listen, you have to agree with everybody. You have to assent and acknowledge and, and celebrate all those things that you see differently from other people. He's not saying that. But what he's saying is that we are, as Christians, to be loving. And so we're called to repent if that's us. And here's the beautiful thing. There is no cancer culture, cancel culture in Christ. If we do that, he meets us with arms wide open, with grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's a beautiful thing that you need to hear today. But for many of us, as we come to this passage, we're coming to it from the receiving end. And we're like, how do we deal with this when our enemies are doing this to us in our lives? 
when we're just trying to simply follow Christ in our thoughts and words and deeds, what do we do with our enemies today? And so for us to understand that, probably a good place for us to start is to consider what does Jesus mean by our enemies? Who are the enemies that he's calling us to love? Well, many of you are not Jack Bauer, okay? You don't have terrorists coming after you 24 hours a day. Some of you probably don't have connections to the mafia. You've never had a a hit put out on you, okay? And so who are the enemies that Jesus is calling you to love? I think a good working definition for us today is this. Your enemy is someone who wishes bad against you or works bad against you. Who are the people in your life that wish bad against you or work bad against you? Maybe those people are populating into your mind right now. Maybe that's your former best friend, your ex fill in the blank. Maybe it's a coworker or neighbor, someone on the other side of the device screen. Maybe it is someone who does hold genuine convictions different than you. Those are your enemies. But maybe we can take that a level deeper. Maybe it's people you think wish bad against you and work bad against you. Because sometimes we think people are enemies when that's simply not the case. Sometimes in our marriages, our spouse can feel that way. Our kids can feel that way at times. Maybe another brother and sister in Christ can feel that way. We think they wish bad against us or are working bad against us. And here's what Jesus is saying. When you think about those people, when you come into contact with these kinds of people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love them. Those are the people I want you to love. And so we probably need to define what do we mean by love when we're talking about that? Is it this squishy, cozy feeling in our tummies that we get for them? No. I don't think that's how the Bible describes love. Usually when the Bible talks about love, it's talking about acts of kindness. And in this passage in particular, it's used in the present imperative. That means that it's something that we do continuously. It's not something that we just do once and we're done, we can move on. It's something we have to do over and over and over again for our enemies. That's what God's calling us to. And so the best definition that I can probably give you for love is loving our enemies is generously, warmly, and sacrificially working for their good. Jesus is calling us for our enemies to warmly, generously, sacrificially work for their goods. And so listen, to the point that we can start incorporating this into our marriages, into our homes, and our workplaces, and in our neighborhoods, into all of our interactions, you are gonna see your life transformed. And you are gonna see the power and potential to change the world around us as well. Here's the big idea you need to walk away with today. In Christ, you can love anybody. In Christ, you can love anybody. And so as we unpack this text today, we're gonna see what that actually looks like and how that's possible. So the first thing we see as we dive into verse 38 is we are called to display sacrificial love rather than retaliation. We as believers display sacrificial love rather than retaliation. Verse 38 says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a famous command that God gave in the Old Testament. It's called the Lex Talionis. It was in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And some people look at this verse and they've got a big problem with it. I remember being a student at Illinois State and one of my professors pulled this out and said, look at this verse. This points to the savagery of God. Who would want to follow a God like this? Some people read this and hate it. That's what Gandhi did. He looked at this verse and said, if we did this, we would all be blind within a matter of months. And so some people push back against this idea, but I think if you're like me, there's something about this verse that we resonate with. 
And I think the reason for that is because each and every single one of us has this innate sense of justice built into us. How do I know that? Well, I look at some of the stories we love. We love revenge stories, don't we? Things like The Count of Monte Cristo or Gladiator or Sweeney Todd or I know you all love the line from The Princess Bride. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die, right? <laughs> we love those kinds of stories because it taps into this sense of justice that we all have. We don't need to be taught it because God put it there. But God also knows that when we live that out ourselves personally, it becomes imperfect. It's riddled with sin because when we try to retaliate, what happens? Do we try to get even? No, we try to get the upper hand. I can even look at this in my, my children. I have a three-year-old daughter named Afton. She's the sweetest girl ever. But a couple weeks ago, when my older daughter stole her toy from her, what did Afton do? Did she go to her and say, excuse me, I'm gonna take this back, thank you. No, she physically assaulted her and then took her toy back, right? Because that's our sense of justice is we get the upper hand on people. When we do that, we often escalate and elevate the problem. We rarely bring about peace when we enact justice ourselves. And so God, in his infinite loving wisdom, said, this is not a law that you live out personally. It's something that's lived out publicly, the lex talionis was meant to be carried out by a judge or a jury because he knows that on our own, we just mess it up. It actually shows he's a loving God who cares about justice and saves us from ourselves when we do such wrong things with it. And so it points us to a loving God. Look with me in verse 39, it says, it continues, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Why do I get all the hard verses? <laughs> what, is you, what do you mean don't resist the one who's evil? Why would he ever say that? Well, we, when we read scripture like this, we have to read it through the lens of wisdom. We have to see it in the context of all of scripture. And so this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. I just came to see that as I was studying this, that there's a lot of ways that people mistake what this is saying. So I wanna address some of those. So one of the things that some people say about this is, well, you look at it and say, well, that means I could never resist someone who's trying to physically attack or to abuse me. Nope, not what it's saying. The Bible never asks you to be a punching bag. It never asks you to be a doormat that you get walked all over. In fact, in the Old Testament law, we see alongside this the call for people to be able to, pretend to, to protect and defend themselves and other people. So that's not what this verse is saying. Some people look at this verse and say, well, this means that we shouldn't stand up against evil. This is the classic text where pacifism comes from in the Bible. But there's people who take this way too far and become uncompromisingly pacifistic. Martin Luther said this about this verse. He said, there's some crazy saints out there who let lice nibble on them and refuse to kill them on account of this text, maintaining that they had to suffer and they could not resist evil. All right, that's taking it way too far. And I think on a cultural broad context, there are many times when there is evil in our world that Christians need to stand up against. And there is countless examples over the generations of Christians rightly standing up against wickedness and evil, and they are to be applauded for that. And so there are things out there that we need to stand up against. Even personally in our lives, there are evils we need to stand up against. It's not loving to continually give in to someone who is trying to manipulate us over and over and over again. 
The most loving thing we can do to that person is stand up against them. The most loving thing we can do is not let someone do evil to themselves or harm themselves. There comes a point when we need to, in love, stand up and say, this is wrong. And so the most loving thing we can do as Christians is sometimes take a stand. Another thing that people can use this passage for is to say, well, there's no place for punishment or justice or retribution in the world today. We should be ruled by compassion. And I see a God who disagrees, honestly. In Romans 13, it says that's actually one of the reasons he gave the government was to enact justice for people who do wrong things. And so we see God says, hey, there is a public sphere in which we enact justice. In the, in the private sphere, we, act, we use forgiveness. And so let me give you an example of what that looks like. Imagine you guys go home today and later tonight someone tries to rob your house and you catch them. What do you do with that person? Well, on a personal level, what God is saying you need to do is forgive that person. Maybe make them some breakfast. Maybe pray for them. And then call the police, okay? Because personally, we forgive. Publicly, we enact justice. Forgiveness and justice are not mutually exclusive things. They work together with one another. And so we see that God is calling us to read this passage through wisdom and understanding. But at the same time, I'm not giving you loopholes for everything, okay? Jesus is going to call each of us to do things that are challenging. They are going to be difficult and they are gonna push us way beyond what we are naturally able to do on our own. And so he's gonna give us four pictures here of sacrificial love that he's calling Christians to. Look with me at the end of verse 39. It says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now don't get too wrapped up in the physical nature of this attack because this is more insult than assault. I'm gonna be more insulted if someone comes up to me after the service and slaps me off across the face because it's gonna hurt my soul much more than it hurts my face, okay? I would rather get gut punched, <laughs> you know? And so this is an insult. And this is what most of us Christians are going to experience from our enemies in our lifetime, is this idea of being insulted, of being shamed, of being mocked, of being scorned. And what Jesus is calling us to do whenever those times come, instead of taking revenge, here's what he's calling us to do. He's telling us to absorb the cost. Citizens of the kingdom, when we have this kind of experience, we are called to absorb the cost. And so when your spouse points out another one of your glaring weaknesses, again, you don't fire right back with one of theirs. When someone makes fun of you at school, you don't go and cut them down right then and there or even with your friends later in private. Jesus is saying, absorb and what it also means to turn our other cheek is not just to absorb it, but we also give people a second chance or maybe a 72nd chance. We don't just cut people off when people sin against us or do wrong against us. It's saying, listen, I'm gonna turn the other cheek. You may not be my best friend anymore. You may have to win my trust back, but I'm giving you another chance. And at the heart of this is the idea of forgiveness that we come back to over and over and over again. This is a sacrificial love that Jesus is calling us to. Look with me in verse 40, it says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And this was a big deal back then. Your cloak was everything. It's what you used for your sleeping. It's what you used for warmth. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says, you could take anything from a person as you sued them, you could take anything from them, but you could not take their cloak. 
because it was their right no matter what to keep. But Jesus says, for the sake of love, what would it look like for us to give our enemies something that they aren't even entitled to? Jesus is saying, what would it look like if we were people that were not so bound up in our rights? I think that's a particular problem for us as American Christians today is we are so wrapped up in our rights that we're missing opportunities to love and be a light to the people around us. So maybe that looks like us not holding people to all the expectations that we have on people all the time. We always have these things that we feel right to have this, but people are never gonna live up to that. What would it look like if we were gracious to people when they failed to live up to our expectations? Said, you know what, I'm gonna love you anyway. Even when you fail to do that, or maybe your spouse who owes you an apology for the way that they sinned against you and they don't give that to you. What would it look like to say, that's okay, I'm gonna move on. I'm just gonna continue loving you anyway. That's what it looks like for us to go above and beyond. Look at verse 41, it says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And this is a pretty radical ideal for some of you because you can't remember the last time you walked a mile. All right? <laughs> This is gonna be a hard one. Well, to understand this, the context for this is Judea was under Roman military occupation at this time. And a daily experience that many Jews would have is a Roman soldier coming up to you and saying, hey, Jew, carry my stuff. And you were obligated to do that. You had no choice in the matter. And so what I imagine happened most times is the Jews would pick up that stuff and they would walk one mile, a thousand paces, with hate in their heart, with hate in their eyes, counting every single step of that mile. And when they got to the end of it, as diplomatically as they can, they would drop that stuff, look at the person in the eye, and say, I'm done. And for many of us, that's how we are living our lives. If we feel like everything is an obligation, we're just trying to do the least amount possible. We're doing just enough to get by. But Jesus is saying, what would it look like if you took that act of obligation and turned it into a free act of love? What would it look like for us to go the second mile today? Well, maybe for some of us, when someone asks you to put on one mask, you put on two masks. All right? <laughs> Good joke, right? You know, but I really think, as I thought about this this week, I think really for most of us, the idea of the second mile is this. We do what we're obligated to do, but we do it with a sense of joy in our heart. You know, I'll be honest with you, confession time. One of the things I hate the most in the world is doing dishes, okay? And when my wife asks me to do my dishes, they're gonna get done, but they may not get done with the best attitude, right? There may be some frowns. There may be some slamming of some drawers. We know what that's like, right? But what Jesus is calling me to do is like, listen, Caleb, what would it look like for you to change that to do it with a heart of joy and then maybe to go to your wife and say, hey, is there anything else I can do? When your boss who you don't like asks you to do a project, how about you do it, but you do it with a sense of gratitude? When the government asks you to pay taxes, you do it with a smile on your face. When your wife asks you to watch another terrible Hallmark Christmas movie, you watch it with her. And then when the credits start to roll, you look her deeply in the eyes and say, let's watch another one. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what, for many of us, it looks like to start going the second mile. Verse 42 says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You know, sometimes our enemy is the person who wants something from us that we don't want to give. 
And here's what Jesus says. When someone comes to you and asks for something, give it to them. Don't sit there and think of all the reasons that you shouldn't. Well, they haven't worked for this. Why would they deserve this? They're just gonna spend it on, on drugs and booze. Jesus says, give it to them because we are to be a people who are generous with all that we have. I've given you so much. Would you share that? And sometimes that's not our treasure. Sometimes that's our talent. Maybe you're working with someone at work and they ask for your help on a project. And you just wanna give the least that you can and make them look bad. But Jesus is saying, do your best. I've given you this gift. I've given you these skills. Use it for their good. Or maybe it's our time that God is calling us to give. You know, we all know those people that just drain us. They wanna hang out with us and they wanna do things and we don't want to, but Jesus says, serve them, love them, talk to them. We're to go above and beyond because we are different and distinct. If you're like me, I look at these four examples and it is hard for me. And I think one of the things that Jesus does as he gives us these examples is he's drawing out what's your motivation What is in your heart? For many of us, if we're honest, we are more motivated by self-preservation and pride than we are by love. And that's why these are so hard for us. But Jesus is saying, what would it look like for you to embrace this idea that you are a citizen of this kingdom and you don't have to be bound up in, you know, your wealth or this idea of retribution or your stuff because what it means to be a part of the kingdom is you have the king If you have that, that's enough. So Jesus is fundamentally trying to to help us see that we are coming from a place of different motivation where we are sacrificial rather than bound up in ourself and retaliation. As we continue on, we see another big thing that Jesus is calling us to. We see that we're we're to display the Father's love rather than selfishness. What it looks like to love our enemies is we display our Father's love rather than selfishness. Verse 43, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Pop quiz. Who knows where this verse is at in the Bible? Where it comes from? Trick question. It doesn't. It's not a Bible verse. You see, Jesus had to deal with fake Bible verses just as much as pastors today. Things like cleanliness is next to godliness or God helps those who helps himself, right? You know, Jesus is dealing with a verse that doesn't exist. The verse for loving your neighbors does exist. But what the Pharisees did was they took that and they added onto it something that they wanted to hear to be able to hate your enemies so that they could feel good about themselves. It allowed them to say, all right, I can love who I wanna love and hate who I wanna hate. And they felt good about it. And what we see here is Jesus calling us to avoid two temptations that we can often fall into with God's word. The first temptation is that we treat God's word like the Pharisees, where we look at scripture and we add on to it, we twist it, we rationalize it to say what we want it to say, when it's very clearly saying something different, because we want to feel good about ourselves and feel justified in what we think, do, and feel. Some of you guys need to go to a chiropractor. Because you've been bending so far over backwards to make the Bible say something that it doesn't say, all right? And so God says, do not twist, don't rationalize my word. Another temptation that we fall into is that we listen to the Pharisees more than we listen to God's word. 
And that's what Jesus was dealing with here, was people that were listening more to the Pharisees than God's actual word. Some of us need to start reading our Bibles more so that we can have a filter for how we process all these things that are going into our heads all around us. We need to better be able to better distinguish what is truth and what is not. We need to get better at selective listening. You know, we can learn from everybody, but we take things and we chew up the meat and we spit out the bones. We keep things that are good and helpful for us, but things that are not true, things that are not helpful, we just say, all right, we don't need that. Some of you need to just stop listening and following certain people because of how far away they are moving you from God. If we're gonna love our enemies with the same love of our Father, we have to know what he says, and we have to know what he means by that. It is going to be essential. Look with me in verse 44, it says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a really hard one. Man, praying for these guys? But one of the beautiful things is that, listen, when we do this, we are showing people the love of God. Because one thing that we know about God, we often focus on the earthly ministry of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. But sometimes we forget about the heavenly ministry of Jesus. Do you know what he's doing for you right now this very second? He's at the right hand of God, praying for you, interceding for you. People who were once his former enemies, he is praying for you. And so when we pray for our enemies, we are showing people what God is like. So what do we pray? Pastor Caleb, is it okay for me to pray that they would get hit by a bus? No. <laughs> Here's what Jesus is saying. He wants us to pray prayers, not that hurt people, but help people. We need to be praying in such a way that we're praying for God to do helpful things for them. We're praying, God, would you save this person? God, would you open their eyes to see the sin in their life and help them to repent of it? Maybe one of the first things that you need to do to start applying this principle today is when you start thinking of that person, that enemy in your head, and you want to stew on that, you want to fantasize what you wish would happen to them, what you need to do instead is just immediately go to prayer for them. Pray, God, would you bless this person? God, would you save this person? God, would you change this person? And here's what's going to happen when you do that. It's gonna surprise you because God doesn't just use our prayers for the benefit of those people we are praying for. God uses our prayers for us as well. There's a pastor who I love who was talking about a couple in his church who is just hard to love, okay? You guys know who I'm talking about, those kinds of people. People that just drain the life out of you. And I remember he, he said that, you know, at one point he just decided, I need to pray for these people, and so for months and months and months, he starts praying for them. And there's one weekend that he's at home, him and his wife, with nothing to do. And she says, hey, what do you want to do today? And to his surprise, he found himself saying, let's hang out with that couple. She was just taken back, why? And he said, I've realized that as I prayed for them, my heart and my posture towards them began to change. I began to see them more through God's eyes than my own natural flesh. You see, C.S. Lewis has very wisely said, prayer doesn't change God, prayer changes us. And sometimes that's what we're gonna see is God uses our prayers to work in the life of our enemies, but also work to save us and transform us more into his likeness as well. We see this 
Next in verse 45, it says, do these things so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, hear this. It doesn't say do these things so that you may become sons. We don't do these things to earn our salvation. What it's saying is that you do these things to show that you are the sons of your father. If we're living out this Sermon on the Mount, we're gonna be showing people that we're a part of God's family, that we're citizens of the kingdom. A helpful way for me to understand this, I've grown a little more fond of a movie called The Christmas Chronicles with my kids over the past couple of years, and the main characters are a part of this Pearson family. And the Pearson family has a coda that says, Pearsons always see it through. So if you're a member of the Pearson family, no matter what comes your way, you're gonna see it through. In the same way, it's like that for God's family. Hey, if you're a part of God's family, you're gonna do these things. So God shows us what it's like to be a part of his family. It says, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And this is pointing us to the kind of person that God is, the kind of character he has. He is distinct from everyone else because no one else in this universe would treat people like this. Where you see God equally extending grace to everyone. We're more like Santa Claus. We would rather make a nice list and a naughty list and give the sun and the rain to only the people that we like, right? But God is so different. He treats everyone equally and he's calling us to do the same, to bless people indiscriminately. If you are my sons and daughters, you're gonna bless people indiscriminately. And so that maybe that means greeting somebody that you don't like with the same kind of warmth and kindness that you would one of your own best friends. Maybe when a colleague you don't like does a good job, you're gonna praise him or her with the same admiration you would for someone that you love. When you think about reaching out to your neighborhood, you don't just reach out to the people that you like, you reach out to everyone. When we do that, we're shadowing the love of our Father. Another thing that we see about God's love is that he surrounds himself with people that are far different from him. We see two examples in this passage, tax collectors and Gentiles. Pharisees would not even acknowledge tax collectors and Gentiles. But what do we see Jesus doing with those kinds of people? We see him moving towards them. We see him engaging them. And so maybe a good question for you is, do you only interact with people just like you? Because if you do, what God is calling us to do is open up our lives more to people around us. Maybe that's something as simple as listening to different kinds of people and understanding who they are, where they're coming from. Maybe it means opening up our homes and our community groups to people that don't look and dress like us. Maybe they come from different backgrounds. Maybe they're different ages and stages. And when we do this, we're reflecting the open arms of our God. But I think the most pointed question that we need to see here in this passage is when Jesus asks us, what are you doing more than others? What are you doing more than others? Remember, the mark of a Christian is their distinctness from the rest of the world around them. God is calling his children He he has different expectations for his children than he does for anybody else. And so he's calling us to look different from them. If we're simply trying to match the people around us, then we're always going to fall far short. That's gonna happen. So you see, if there's unbelievers in our neighborhoods that are more servant-hearted and hospitable than we are, 
we're falling short. If there are unbelievers in our workplaces and classrooms that are more welcoming and more kind than we are, then we are falling short. If there are unbelievers in our family that are better relatives than we are, we're falling short. If there are unbelievers in this city that are being more welcomed and loved by other organizations in our city rather than our church here, then we as a church are falling short. And so Jesus, man, as disciples of Jesus, we claim to have something that nobody else has. And so we should be living, breathing, walking, talking, anomalies. We, it is not enough for us to simply resemble the best non-believers out there. We have to far outstrip them in every way. That's what God's calling us to. And we see the last thing that we need to understand as we move into verse 48, it says, we need to see, we display loving dependence rather than self-sufficiency. We are called to display loving dependence rather than self-sufficiency. Because if you think all of this is hard enough, look with me at verse 48, it says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And here's what Jesus is doing with his disciples back then and today. He is rightly ruining our confidence in our own good works. What Jesus wants us to do is read a passage like this and say, I can't do that. And you would be right. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus can look at the same passage and say, I can do that. And I did do that. Because the best commentary for this passage is the life of Jesus. When we look at the life and death of Jesus, we see a God who turned his cheek to his enemy. He literally gave his cheek to the person who would betray him. We see a God who gave up his right to a fair trial. We see a God who was beaten, mocked, and scorned, and never once retaliated. We see a God who had his cloak stripped from him. We see a God who was forced to carry a Roman cross to the place of his death. We see a God who, as he's hanging on that cross, forgives the people around him and prays for them. And we see a God, when we would come to him and beg for forgiveness, he freely meets us with open arms, with love and forgiveness and grace. That's the kind of love that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of God that we serve. And he didn't do that just to show us that he could do it. The good news is he did that for us because if this were the expectation for us to have a relationship with God, for us to have eternal life, we would all be in trouble because we could never possibly do that on our own. But when we say we depend on Jesus Christ, God, do it for me, he does it for us. And that's the difference between religion and the gospel. The religion says there's good people and bad people. The gospel says there's bad people and then there's Jesus. Religion says, I can do it. The gospel says, Jesus did it. That's the good news today. Jesus did that for us. And here's the beautiful mystery. When we can come to him and say, I can't do this on my own. I need you to do it for me. I am wholly dependent on you. And we find ourselves in that place where we are his. It's at that point that we actually find that we can start to see the power of him working in us. And what we couldn't do before on our own, we can now do with him. We can start to love our enemies. And so we can look at this verse in a whole new way when it says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We're not looking at that as a way to salvation. We're looking at it through different lenses and saying, because of all that Christ has done for me, I want to look like this. 
I want to look more like the Father who saved me, not for our salvation, but from our salvation. And when we come to that place, like I said, we find that we can truly begin to love the enemies around us. And here are three ways that we're gonna be able to do that and take that this week so that you can apply this to the enemies that you see in your life. The first way this is possible for us is that we can love our enemies because God saved us while we were still his enemies. Listen, if you come to God and think that he is lucky to have you on his team, you don't get it. You do not get it. You are coming to him a rebel against his will. You were a little snot, right? You had nothing going for you. You were his enemy, but you know what? God pursued you in spite of that. And instead of meeting wrath, what you were met with was love that was like an ocean without shore or bottom. While you were his enemy. And when you behold that kind of love, it humbles us. When you behold and understand that kind of love, it allows you to see yourself in the enemies that are oppressing you. Because you can say, I've been there. I know what that's like. When you behold this kind of love in Jesus Christ, you're able to treat other people the way that he has treated us. And so the way that we grow in our love for his enemy is an understanding that God pursued us and loved us while we were his enemies. Another way that we can grow in loving our enemies is understanding that God will ultimately bring justice. God is the one who will always ultimately bring justice. In the scripture, we see that every bad deed that is done will ultimately be paid for in one of two places, either in hell or on the cross. And when we embrace this, it's something that frees us. We so often feel like if we don't do something about this, then they are never gonna experience the justice that they deserve. But when we understand this rightly, we know everything will be paid for. And when we have this, we can forgive even the very worst of things that happen to us. I think one of the most powerful examples I've seen of this is in a young woman whose name is Rachel Den Hollander. Rachel was a gymnast who was sexually abused by a man named Larry Nasser. Many of you know this story from a couple of years ago. And it was at her, the trial for Larry that she stands up and she addresses him. And she's coming from a place as someone who loves the Lord and knows him and understands this principle deeply that God will bring about justice in the end. And here's what she says to him at the trial. She said, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend it to you as well. That's powerful. This idea that we know God will ultimately, at the end of the day, take care of everything that's ever been done when we understand that we can forgive even the worst of things. For some of you today, that is going to be the thing that allows you to finally forgive maybe that person that's coming into your mind right now. And the last thing that motivates us to love our enemy is this. We know that there is a reward that we will receive for loving our enemies. Sometimes we're gonna experience that reward, that reward here on earth in our lifetimes. 
Because when we love our enemies, there is the potential that we can bring peace where there was once strife. And that's a beautiful thing when you get to experience that. But I can't say, I promise that's gonna happen every time. I wish I could. But we see in scripture that it says loving your enemy is like heaping coal over their head. I don't know about you, but that would not make me happy. And so we know that there's a risk that comes sometimes when we love our enemies, but there's also the potential that we could see them turn to Christ and see their need for him as a savior. And so the reward that we potentially can have here on this earth is to see mission, to be witnesses to the God that has saved us from so much and he can invite them into the same. And if we don't have that here on the earth, one of the things that we know is we will have a reward in heaven as well. That at the end of the day, no matter what we've gone through, if we are in Christ and we strive to look like him by loving our enemies, there's gonna be a day when we will stand before him and he will look us in the eyes and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And everything that we experience this lifetime would seem like light and momentary affliction to the glory that awaits us in that moment. That's the good news, that's what empowers us. And so as we come to a close here today, if you are not a Christian, what you need to hear today, you need to understand who you are before God. You, right now, are his enemy. Maybe you think you're on pretty good terms. Maybe you need a little counseling. But you're his enemy. And what you need to hear is that God loves you. And he's waiting to meet you right there, no matter where you're at. He wants to come into your life. He wants to change you. He wants you to experience the love of the Father. That's your invitation today. If you're here today and you're a Christian, remember what it was like for God to love you as his enemy. Let your heart fill with that reminder. And for you, you just need to take your next step. What's my next step? Some of you, that's just to begin praying for your enemies. Maybe you need to consider what it looks like to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile. What is it that God's calling you to? And we don't arrive right away, right? Sometimes we just need to learn how to crawl. And as we crawl, we learn how to walk. And as we walk, we learn how to run. And so this is something that God is gonna do with us over time. But where's your first step today? Because if we can do this, we're gonna see the powerful transformation that God brings into our lives and the way that he can use the church and the world today as a powerful witness. I just wanna finish off reading you a story from Corey Ten Boom. If you don't know about Corey Ten Boom, she's a survivor of the Holocaust. When she went through that, she lost everything, everything. Her friends, her family, everything that she possessed was gone. And she came out strong in the end with Christ. But she tells this story. She says, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS officer who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center of Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there again. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that it is, as you say, he has washed all my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people of Blomendal, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. 
Jesus Christ had died for this man, was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive this man. But as I tried, I felt nothing. I tried to smile, I tried to raise my hand, but I could not. Not even the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Please give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than it is on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Let's pray. Father, we come to you overwhelmed when we truly think about it, that you would love us. We did nothing to deserve that. We were your enemies, God, and yet you pursued us. Jesus Christ is the most moving picture I can possibly imagine of that, Lord. All that you did for us. And so, God, I pray that this church would be overwhelmed when you tell us to love your enemies, to love our enemies, that we would see the way that you loved and pursued us and that we could not help but turn around and do that for the people around us. God, we pray that you would transform our lives and Lord, through that, you would draw many people unto yourself. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.